0: Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. I just want to reiterate what Joshua said earlier in the service during the welcome time. We would really love it if we could get people to volunteer to donate blood. So if you are physically able, if you're healthy, and if you're available, we would love for you to sign up for that. The best way to do that would be to find one of the red cross cards in the seat pocket in front of you. And use one of those. Feel free to drop that off at the welcome desk when you leave. Give it to me. Give it to Jeff. Give it to one of the elders. Either way, we'll get you set up and scheduled and good to go. So we hope that you will really use this as an opportunity to serve the community, serve people in need, uh, because giving blood is certainly a significant thing and it's a significant need, especially in times of crisis and times of tragedy. Um, or in times of illness, like what we're about to be going into for the year. So we hope that you will contribute in that way. But last week, I just want to thank Jeff for preaching through the book of Nehemiah. And in chapter 5, he looked at how, up to that point, chapters 2, 3, 4, there was a lot of opposition from outside that Nehemiah was dealing with. There were a lot of people outside of Jerusalem that were attacking Nehemiah that we're trying to frustrate the work, that we're trying to sabotage the project that God was doing and the task that God had given Nehemiah. But then in chapter 5, we see a little bit of a shift. And Nehemiah is not dealing with outside issues or outside conflict. He's dealing with issues inside the city of Jerusalem itself. You have wealthy Jews who are taking advantage of their fellow countrymen who aren't as wealthy just to fatten their own wallets. And as a result the city is hurting and what we saw is that nehemiah is angered by this and he mourns this fact And so he goes to these wealthy jews and he tells them guys. What are you doing? We're all god's people and this city is never going to flourish If we're taking advantage of each other like this If we're treating each other unfairly if we're treating each other unjustly And so he encourages them guys. Let's treat each other with grace Let's make sacrifices for one another. Let's take care of one another. Because the city of Jerusalem is never going to be what God would have it be if we refuse to treat one another the way God would have us treat one another. And I think the same can be said for this church. If this church is going to flourish, if this church is truly going to be fruitful in the eyes of God, then I think we have a responsibility to treat one another with kindness, to treat one another with care, to look for each other's interests ahead of our own, even if that means things get a little bit more difficult for us. And so I hope that you'll be praying with me and praying with the leadership that we can become that kind of church, that we can become those kind of people who are always looking out for one another, always making sacrifices for one another, and always looking to the good of the community and to the good of the church. But that brings us to where we are today, in Nehemiah chapters 6 and 7. We're going to see Nehemiah dealing with opposition again, but this time it focuses back to our friends, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. But before we get there, will you pray with me, and then we'll jump into the text. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for... All of your word, God, that builds us up, that encourages us, that holds us accountable, that convicts us, God. And I pray that as we look at this text today, we will be encouraged and we will be challenged in the way that we handle conflict and in the way that we handle opposition, not just as our church, but as individual people. So God, please continue working on us, transforming us, humbling us, and refining us to be a people worthy of your name. We love you. We thank you for Christ and the grace and mercy you offer through him and the penalty he paid. We ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Nehemiah chapter 6 and 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles in the chair underneath you or maybe beside you. We'll also have verses up on the screen if you'd like to follow along that way. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you go today. So. Nehemiah chapter 6, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I hadn't set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at, ready for this, Hakifirim in the plain of Ano, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Now we're going to look at the first of three different forms of opposition that Nehemiah is going to be dealing with in this passage. And I think it's important that we look at them because I think, really, Even though we are living thousands of years later in a completely different place, completely different culture, dealing with completely different aspects of life, we face these same types of opposition every single day in our walk with Christ. And so I think it's important that we look at these, and I think we can get a lot out of them. And so what we see in this first form of opposition is we see the opposition of distractions, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. They've been trying to frustrate the work. They tried mocking. They tried threats. They tried intimidation. They tried all kinds of things, and none of it had worked up to this point. So they send for Nehemiah, and they say, you know, Nehemiah, we got off on the wrong foot. We thought you couldn't do it. We thought you couldn't handle the project. We thought it was going to be too big for you. We thought we could stop you, but we tip our hats to you you proved us wrong. The wall's built. All you have left to do are the gates. You know what? Let's get together. Let's talk it out. Clearly, we're going to have to learn to coexist together. So what do you say? Let's hug it out in the valley of Hakifirim. When I was in Bible college, when I took Hebrew, they actually had, we had actually had an entire class period where we were trained on how to do the ha in the Hebrew language, the Hakafirum. So, They say, Nehemiah, get with us, and we'll talk it out and figure out what it is that we can do to coexist and respect one another. Now, that sounds nice. Nehemiah is probably a little bit tempted by that. Sounds like a good proposition. But here's the problem. Nehemiah is smarter than that. Nehemiah has an incredible amount of wisdom, an incredible amount of discernment. And so he looks at this situation. He looks at Sambalad. He looks at Tobiah, and he says, you know what, guys? I don't think you really want to talk it out. I think you're trying to lure me out here because you're going to try to hurt me. And at the very least, if you can lure me away, even if you don't harm me, you can distract me from the work that is happening here. Because Nehemiah is looking at the wall and it looks great. There's been huge progress, but it's not quite done yet. There's still the gates left. And Nehemiah refuses to take his eyes off of that. He refuses to take his eyes also off of the task that God has given him and off of the work that God is doing through him in Jerusalem. I think we deal with distractions on a regular basis. There's a book here I'm going to read a couple excerpts out of called The Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis. If you've never heard of The Screwtape Letters, it's one of his most famous books, And it's kind of got a weird premise, so just bear with me here. The premise of the Screwtape letters is these are all letters written from a demon named Screwtape to his nephew demon, Wormwood. And Screwtape is writing letters to Wormwood giving him advice on how to be a good demon, on how to tempt people, on how to drag people away from God. And one of the first pieces of advice that Screwtape gives is distractions. We read in that book, Once you have made the world an end, and faith a means, you have almost won your man, and it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. He is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. So Screwtape's advice to Wormwood is, okay, your guy became a Christian, but don't worry yet. Not all is lost. We still have some options here. And so he tells him, try distracting the guy. Give him some causes. Give him some crusades. Give him some movements to focus his attention on. And even if those crusades and causes and movements are noble... Even if they're under the guise of faith, if you can draw his eyes away from God, you'll make good progress. I think the same can be said for us. We are often tempted with distractions. As we talked about in our James series, the Sermon on Prayer in James chapter 5, we talk about how busy our schedules are and how we have so much to do we can't possibly fit in time to serve. We can't possibly fit in time to be in God's word. We can't possibly fit in time to pray. We can't possibly fit in time to be in community with other believers who will hold us accountable and encourage us because we have so many distractions. And some of those distractions may be good things in and of themselves. But if they draw us away from God, that's a problem. Maybe it's not just a busy schedule. I remember in Batesville, at the church I worked in there, one problem we had with our children's ministry and our youth ministry was we had tons of kids who played in Sunday sports leagues. And these families would never, ever be at church. Now, I'm not one of those people who says that you have to be at church every single week. I understand that you travel, and sometimes you have commitments, and sometimes you have things to do, and that's all well and good. I'm not against sports either. But when sports are consistently... Week in and week out for months on end, drawing you away from involvement with a body of believers, then that's a problem. And yes, maybe that Sunday sport league, you're looking at it and you're thinking, you know what? This is the one thing that could get my son or daughter that D1 scholarship. And maybe that's the one thing that could get my son or daughter that pro career in the sport. Well, that's all well and good, too, But if it's drawing you away from Christ, that's a problem. It's a huge problem. It's a distraction. And then finally, we face the distractions that the world so often throws at us the distractions of success, the distractions of wealth, the distractions of reputation. All of them are tempting, and some of them may be good in and of themselves, but they lose their value if they draw our eyes away from Christ. What we see there with Nehemiah's response is that he refused to let the distractions draw his eyes away from the work that God had given him to do, but also the work that God was doing in Jerusalem. So pick up in chapter 6, verse 5. We're going to look at the second temptation, the second opposition that Nehemiah is going to deal with. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So come now, let us meet together. Let us take counsel together. So the first opposition was distractions. The second one that we see here, outright lies. Tobiah and Sanballat and Geshem, they make up rumors about Nehemiah. They say, you know, Nehemiah, we've heard it said that you're just trying to rebel against the king. That the king trusted you. The king gave you all those resources. The king let you leave his service, and now you're going to stab him in the back because you want to be king, and you want to be in charge. And you know, Artaxerxes and kings in general, they're pretty paranoid people, and so it would really be terrible if Artaxerxes heard about this. He might not like it. He might not like the fact that his former cupbearer is trying to take over. So tell you what, let's meet together. And maybe then Artaxerxes won't hear about this nasty little rumor about you. How's Nehemiah going to respond to the lies? Look at verse 8. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you were inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. We, too, deal with lies as a form of opposition in our faith. And Screwtape, our buddy Screwtape, suggests lies are a good way to draw a human away from Christ as well. Another letter to Wormwood. Another possibility is that of direct attack on his faith. When you have caused him to assume that the trough is permanent, can you not persuade him that his religious phase is just going to die away like all his previous phases? Wormwood says you know what that's a good idea Maybe i'll just try and attack the guy's faith Maybe i'll try and tell the guy that this whole thing was just one big phase It was all a lie This stuff can't be true A guy was resurrected from the grave That he was god in the flesh Come on That just doesn't make any sense It's just a phase Like everything else Just get over it buddy We deal with lies, too. Satan is the father of lies. The first appearance we see of Satan in Scripture is Genesis chapter 3. And as Eve and Adam are standing in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does Satan say? Satan says, hey, Eve, that that fruit looks pretty good, pretty tasty. And Eve says, now, wait a minute. God told us not to touch that tree. God told us not to eat from that tree or else we're going to die. And Satan says, Eve, come on. Are you really going to die? After all, God's lying to you. He will not surely die. In fact, if you eat from that tree, the reason God's telling you not to is not because you'll die, but because then you'll really live. And he's only trying to keep you down, Eve. He's only trying to oppress you. Because then if you eat from it, you'll become a threat to him. So you won't die, Eve. In fact, if you really want to live, you'll eat from that tree. And what does Eve do? She believes the lie. Adam believes the lie. You and I face the lies of Satan and the lies of the world as well. We face the lies that maybe if you're not quite a Christian yet, but you're kind of thinking about these things, you face the lie that, you know what, God can never save you. God would never love you. God would never send his son to die for you after what you did last night? After what you did five years ago? After what you did when you were in college? How could God possibly ever love you? It's a lie. Don't buy into it. Maybe you're a seasoned Christian, a mature Christian who's growing and developing and becoming more like Christ every single day. Well, you'll deal with the lie that you know what you won't ever deal with that sin that your friend is dealing with you would never fall into that you're too good for that you're too mature for that you're immune to it when you believe that lie you're more susceptible to that sin than you have ever been before and then there's always the good old-fashioned lie that is really appealing to us you know The whole God thing isn't even necessary in the first place. Because all paths lead to the same summit. We all know that, right? But then, you don't need grace. You don't need forgiveness. You haven't done anything really bad. You pay your taxes. You try not to lie. You try not to cheat. You try not to steal. You're definitely not like that axe murderer over there. So, you know what? You don't need grace, you don't need mercy. Just be a good person. Just try and live a good life. Just try and be moral. And then you'll be in good standing with God. Don't buy into that lie either. Don't buy into the lie that somehow you can moralize your way into God's favor. It simply isn't true. Nehemiah refuses to buy into the lies. And we too must refuse to buy into the lies as well. Finally, look at the third opposition that Nehemiah is going to face in verse 10. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabal, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for Nehemiah. They are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. This third form of opposition that we see, it's not just distractions. It's not just lies. It's good old-fashioned temptation to sin. See something wrong? Come on. Give it a shot. It's okay. After all, people are coming to kill you. And is this really that big of a sin? Entering the temple and closing the doors well for nehemiah it was Nehemiah knew that he was not worthy of entering the temple that only a priest could enter the temple but shemiah this prophet Says come on nehemiah go in after all your life is on the line Do you really think that god's gonna hold that against you if you go in? Do you really think that god's like that? well nehemiah refuses to give in to that temptation He refuses to sacrifice his character, to sacrifice his integrity, to sacrifice his striving for holiness just to save his own skin. And then Nehemiah picks up on things. Look at verse 12. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the peoples who wanted to make me afraid. Last time, back to our old friend Screwtape and his letters to Wormwood. Screwtape writes of temptations. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness in your human. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Screwtape writes to Wormwood, just get your guy to sin, even if it's something small, even if it's something tiny, just tell him, Wormwood. You know, you've been a pretty good guy lately. I think you deserve this. You deserve to splurge a little bit. You won't fall into it. You won't become addicted to it. You've earned this. You've been pretty good so far. What could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot can go wrong when we entertain the temptation to sin. Adam and Eve gave into that temptation. But the good news is that where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus didn't. After Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, he goes into the desert, and he's tempted by Satan with all these different enticing opportunities, all these different great-looking things. But what does Jesus do? He resists the temptation. What Adam and Eve couldn't do, what you and I can't do perfectly, Jesus does do perfectly And thanks be to God that he resisted that temptation and that he went to the cross for you and for me Nehemiah resisted the temptation as well and because of that the work of God continued in Jerusalem So when we face these forms of opposition, what can we learn from Nehemiah? How do we handle the forms of opposition? Well, when it comes to distractions Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul makes it clear, seek the things that are above. Put your eyes on those things. In Philippians, Paul would say, seek whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is blameless. Keep your eyes on that stuff. Remember your calling. Nehemiah never forgot the task that God had given him, the mission that God had called him to, and the work that God was doing in Jerusalem. In the same way, don't forget your calling when you're faced with the distractions that tend to take our eyes away from our calling. So what do we do when we face lies? Look at John chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. In that passage, we read the words of Jesus, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. When Nehemiah faced those lies, the false rumors about how he wanted to be king and he was starting a rebellion, and Artaxerxes wouldn't have taken kindly to that, what does Nehemiah do? He rejects the lies and then he immediately turns to God. He prays to God, God, strengthen my hands. Throughout the book, we see Nehemiah constantly turning to God, constantly being in communion with God. And so when you face the lies that God would never love you, when you face the lies that, come on, that could never happen to you, that falling into sin, when you face the lies that, you know what, just be a good person, just moralize your way into heaven, don't buy in. Instead, commune with God because when you face those lies, he is the only source of truth in this world and in the world that is to come. Don't buy into the lies. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in community with other people. Spend time in scripture. Spend time in accountability and encouragement. Be with God. Lean on God. Depend on God. Because he is the only source of truth And the third form of opposition nehemiah dealt with was the good old-fashioned temptation to sin So what do we do when we face that? Well, look at romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17 So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh For if you live according to the flesh, you will die But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live ...in order that we may also be glorified with Him. When you face temptation, remember your identity. Remember who you are. Remember that you're no longer a slave to fear, but you are a child of God. That you have been adopted into God's family. And it wasn't by anything that you did. It wasn't by meeting some prerequisites. It wasn't because you proved yourself worthy of that distinction... It was purely by God's grace and purely by God's mercy. And when you understand that grace, when you look at that mercy, when you look at the cross, remember that you are a child of God now. Don't fall back into fear. Don't fall back into slavery to sin is what Paul would tell us. Nehemiah never sold out who he was. He never sold out. To save his own skin when he faced that temptation. I pray that we can do the same thing. Look at Nehemiah chapter 6 verses 15 and 16. Closing out our passage this morning. Then we'll jump into 7 for just a second. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul and 52 days. Only 52 days of construction. And when all our enemies heard of it. All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. What I love about that couple of verses is that when Nehemiah resists the opposition, when the wall is finished in this incredibly quick time frame, people don't look at Nehemiah and say, wow, Nehemiah is great. He is just a great leader. He's just a great guy. It is truly amazing that he was able to withstand all that opposition all on his own. No, they look at the project, and they look at Nehemiah, and they glorify God. And they say, look at the work that God did in Jerusalem. Look at the work that God did there. And Nehemiah had the privilege of just working alongside God, but really it was God all along. It wasn't Nehemiah's pet project. It wasn't Nehemiah's hobby. God was in it. In the same way, as we face the attacks that we so often deal with as followers of Christ, the distractions, the lies, the temptations, glorify God because you're not withstanding that on your own. And if you think you are, then you better be prepared to fall because it will happen. Nehemiah was constantly dependent upon God constantly looking to god constantly begging god to strengthen his hands because he knew He couldn't do this on his own He couldn't withstand these attacks on his own. He couldn't finish the project on his own And as a result when the project was finished who gets the glory God gets the glory I pray That as we as a church deal with opposition from time to time And as we as followers of christ Deal with opposition from time to time That we can give god that same glory And that when we lean on god when we commune with god And when we're able to withstand the attacks people will look at us and say oh look at him He's a great christian. No They'll say look at that person's god There really must be something to this god thing. They always talk about I pray that will happen I pray that we will be dependent upon god for that strength individually and together as a church. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. God, thank you for the work that you're doing in each and every one of us. And thank you for the work that you're doing here in this church. And God, I pray that you will give us the strength to resist the opposition that comes, the attacks that make their way to our doorstep. And that you'll get the glory as we withstand those attacks. Because we can't do that on our own. Thank you for your son, Jesus God. Thank you that when he dealt with the distractions and the lies and the temptations that Adam and Eve gave into, that we so often give into as well, that he didn't give into them. That he lived a perfect, sinless life. And that because of that, we can now be called children of God sons of God. And it's all by your grace, God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. We give you the glory in all things. Amen. If you're in a position where you've bought into the lies, maybe you're not a Christian and you've heard the lie that God could never love you, that God could never save you, that God would never want anything to do with you because of what you've done, Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the side of the room. They'll be happy to pray with you and talk to you about that and give you the truth of the gospel. Maybe you've bought into the lie that, you know, I can just moralize my way into heaven. Well, talk to one of our elders and they'll be happy to tell you the truth that all of us have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and that we can't just be good people and get good standing with God. We need mercy, we need grace. We need atonement for our sin. And maybe you're a mature Christian, and you bought into the lie that that sin could never happen to me, that I would never fall into that trap. And all of a sudden you look and you have. Our elders will be happy to talk to you about that as well, to pray with you, to repent. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I pray that as we are wrestling with how we respond to a sermon like this, as we wrestle with opposition, that we'll trust in you. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.